Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Chapter 4 The Discourse at the Supper The True Life Amen, amen, I say to you Five times at least already in the course of this evening had Jesus made use of this solemn introduction. It was as if he had wished to begin a last discourse, a farewell address, that would crown all he had said during his life of preaching, but had been unable to continue. As if he had something momentous to say, but had been prevented from saying it. First, as we have seen, it had been the presence and memory of Judas and his treachery that had choked his words. Then it was the recollection of Simon Peter's coming denial and of the desertion of the rest. But now at last he recovered. The time was pressing, only a few hundred yards away, over the wall across the street. The enemy was already gathering his forces, and he must delay no longer. In return for their treachery and denial, he had given to his disciples himself. For the remainder of the evening, he would find some relief in pouring out his very soul upon them, in giving and ever giving again, as if he would bribe them by his constant giving to give back to him. Give and it shall be given to you had been one of the mottos he had ever held up before them. We may sometimes forget that it has been by his own excessive giving that he has induced mankind to give in its turn. Then at last, when these men had been won to give in the measure he gave, then would the union be perfect, as perfect as the union between the Father and himself. When that was secured, when love between them had so grown that each gave to the other all he had and all he was, Then would he be able to crown the work he had begun. He would take them with him, made truly one heart and one soul, and offer them along with himself to the Father. We cannot hope to comprehend all that is contained in his words. We can only let him speak in his own language and listen, catching from them, if we may, some impression of him who has so wished to reveal himself. Amen, amen, I say to you, He that believeth in me, the works that I do, he also shall do, and greater than these he shall do. Because I go to the Father, and whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask me anything in my name, that I will do. Believe in me, ask of me. Faith and trust. Here are the foundations of the spiritual life, as Jesus at the end describes it. Believe in me, and you shall do great things, greater things than I have done. And if there is yet more needed, ask of me, and I will do them for you. All through his life he has striven to deepen these two lessons in his own. When a pagan Roman soldier has proved his faith, he has praised him for it. When a pagan woman of Phoenicia has clung to him, he has rewarded her confidence. 
But when his own have gone to him with faith and trust, surely no less, he has always asked for more and more. He has rewarded the Roman by healing his servant, the Phoenician by reviving her daughter, though he did not go to either. But from his own he has asked for faith that would move mountains. He would have it such that it would be a rock against which the gates of hell itself would not be able to prevail. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. Believe in me, trust me, love me. Here is the completion of the foundation he has just laid down. Love me and prove that love by doing what I bid you, and all the rest will follow. I will do that rest. Standing before the Father, ever living to make intercession, I will win for you another life which shall never die. He that believeth in me hath everlasting life, for it shall be the life of the Spirit of God himself the Spirit which shall make you truly sons of God, which shall speak in you and with you, so that you shall cry with full right, Abba, Father. It shall be the Spirit that shall open your eyes that you may see, your understanding that you may know, not as this world sees, with its blinding human limitations, but as all things are in the realm of utter truth, which is the realm not of man, but of your Father. God. How often in the past had he lifted up their eyes to this greater vision? Greater things than these shalt thou see. Amen, amen, I say to you, you shall see the heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world shall see me no more. But you shall see me, because I live and you shall live. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Faith hope, love on the part of man, and in return, union on the part of Jesus Christ and his Father. He had before laid down the foundations of the spiritual life. He had shown whence came its vivifying force. Now he tells us of its consummation. He had come into the world, and the world had seen him, but it had not known him. Soon it would put him to death, and to the world, accordingly, he would henceforth be dead. Nevertheless, to others, he would live on. To those who had received him, to whom he had given power to become sons of God and had believed in his name, these would yet know him and would see him, if not with the eyes of this body, still with the certainty of faith. They would see him and would know they were not mistaken. Jesus Christ, truly man, and at the same time, Jesus Christ, truly God, one with and in the Father. And as he was one with the Father, so would he be one with them. Faith and hope and love, 
giving all from their side, should have their reward, such a reward as God alone could give, in love and union with him, till they lived, no, not they, but he would live in them. Then indeed would they know, for living in them, he would love in them. His love would be their love, and they would see what human eyes, human learning, would never bring them to see, his glory, the glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Judas saith to him, Not the Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself to us, and not to the world? On a memorable occasion, before the Feast of Tabernacles in the preceding year, we were told that Jesus had stayed behind in Galilee and had declined to go up to Jerusalem with the rest, because he knew of a plot devised there to kill him. We were told that his brethren urged him to go, that he might be manifested more to the world. And his brethren said to him, Pass from hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see thy works which thou dost. For there is no man that doth anything in secret, but he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, manifest thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Now in the middle of our Lord's discourse, an echo of that same complaint is heard, and it comes from Judas, not the Iscariot, but from him who has, as it would seem, described himself in his epistle as the brother of James, that is Jude. Now James was the brother of the Lord, as many have accepted, and has elsewhere been assumed. John has told us that the kinsfolk of Jesus did not believe in him. Here was one who did believe, and had been chosen to be among the twelve, yet was he beset with the same problem. He had headed the complaints of his kinsmen at home in their cottage in Nazareth. With the rest of the twelve, he had waited for the manifestation. Now, on a sudden, he was told that it would be made not to the world at large, which would soon see Jesus no more, but to one or two only. Judas could not understand, indeed, could any of them understand. Long after the resurrection, we still hear them asking, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Of Judas or Jude, we know very little. Only this we know, that he was also called Thaddeus or Lebeus, and both of these are diminutive or pet names. We know that when he wrote his epistle, he could speak of his master only as the only sovereign ruler and our Lord Jesus Christ, and that then at least he had realized what the kingdom meant when he concluded, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and magnificence, empire and power before all ages, and now and for all ages of ages. Amen. Jesus offered Judas no rebuke. He did not use his name in reply, as he had done with affection to Philip and Peter. He seemed to make him no answer. Yet in his words, the answer was complete. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and will make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my words. 
and the word which you have received is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Yes, it was indeed a sufficient answer, for the knowledge of Jesus Christ does not come merely by learning. It comes not from without, but from within. Not from study, but from the heart, as does the knowledge of anyone we love. No one repeats this more than St. Augustine, who sought God everywhere by every sort of study and failed to find him, until at last he sought and found him within himself. The light is given. Love makes us follow it, and it leads us on to more. For love responds to love, the love of the Father to the creature's love, the coming of the Father and the Son to the coming of the creature, even when he is yet a great way off, they come to him. And all is known that the creature at that moment can know. Jesus, in his answer, had said more than Judas or his companions could then have well understood. But the day would come when they would understand, and then all would be recalled. Let them wait, as Jesus was himself content to wait. Let them trust him as he had trusted them, let them not cease to love, however else they might be tried. For to them that love, all things cooperate to good. These things have I spoken to you, abiding with you. But the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring all things to your mind, whatsoever I shall have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. You have heard that I said to you, I go away and come unto you. If you loved me, you would indeed be glad, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it came to pass, that when it shall come to pass, you may believe. All through the evening we may notice what we may well call the concern of Jesus for his own, because of the trouble that must soon come to them on his account. Indeed, for months past, since the day of the confession of Peter, he had been preparing them for it. He had warned them again and again of his coming suffering and death, but always he had added the assurance of his resurrection and return. He had warned them even of their own desertion, but he had also promised that in the end all would be well. Now he gives them a further key, a sure source of all contentment. In himself, if they will believe and trust and love, they will find a peace of mind and heart which nothing can destroy, a peace which will fear nothing, which will find in everything matter for thanksgiving, yes, even in the temporary separation from himself. Before, he had told them how the life of the Spirit, founded on their own faith and hope and constant love, would lead to perfect union. Now he tells them how that same life, built on that same foundation, led to the glory of the cross. He had taught them the lesson many times before, but never with such tender and intimate affection as on this night. It would seem that at this point John gives us the conclusion of the discourse. Judas Iscariot had long been gone, 
Jesus knew that very soon he and his new followers would be on their way to take him. He could, if he so chose, defy them now as he had defied them before, never more than during the early days of that very week. But this time he would surrender. It was his father's will that his enemies should at last have their way. In their victory, men should later recognize his own crowning victory of love. Still, he would not be taken there in that supper room, hallowed by all that had been done in it that night. He would go elsewhere, and his captors should follow him, from the first scene to the last, and the tragedy about to begin. They should do his will, even while they did him to death. I will not now speak many things to you, for the prince of this world cometh, and in me he hath not anything, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandment, so do I. Arise, let us go hence. The Fruit of Life With these words, as has just been said, St. John at first concluded his account of the discourse at the Last Supper. But there are several places in his Gospel where it appears evident that later, after he has written his first version, other matters have occurred to him to be put down, and these often of greater value to us than what he has already written. Thus, at the end of his Gospel, he has added an account of an apparition which posterity could ill spare. Possibly the chapter which tells of the promise of the Holy Eucharist is another instance. The same, perhaps, has happened here. John has dwelt long and often on that unforgettable scene, and every time the promise of his beloved has been the more fulfilled. The Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your mind, whatsoever I shall have said to you. Of all these memories there is one in particular which St. John is unwilling to omit, the parable of the vine, which Jesus spoke that evening. And once he has begun again, his pen runs on. He traverses once more the whole field, confirming what he has already said, adding further visions of the truth, concluding at last with the prayer which crowns the whole of that evening's revelation. It may have been that the eye of John had been caught by the vine growing along the poles beneath his window. Or perhaps as he read his Old Testament, the frequent use of the symbol of the vine by the prophets had brought this last illustration to his mind. It may have been that the image of the mystical body, of which St. Paul had made so much use, had recalled to him this other image, used by Jesus himself to express the same, or a parallel truth. Jesus, too, on that night had noticed the vine growing in the courtyard beneath him, and, as was his wont, he had used the object before him to express once more the essence of all he had to say to his beloved. I am the vine, and my father is a husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he will take away, and every one that beareth fruit he will purge it, that it may bring forth more fruit." Now you are clean by reason of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abide in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If any one abide not in me, he shall be cast forth as a branch, and shall wither. And they shall gather him up, and cast him into the fire, and he burneth. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. In this is my Father glorified, that you bring forth very much fruit, and become my disciples. As we have said, the symbol of the vine was familiar to readers of the Old Testament. It had often been on the lips of the prophets, but almost always it had been used by them in a special sense as representing the chosen people. They were the vine which the Father had planted and cultivated, yet whose fruits had been so disappointing. Now, suddenly, this is changed. Not the chosen people, but Jesus himself is the vine. The Father has planted him, having rejected the other, as Jesus had said that he would in many recent parables. Jesus, the true vine, cannot fail the Father. And yet, that it may bear fruit, the vine must have its branches. Without these, the trunk, however living, will do nothing. And Jesus tells them this wonderful thing. The branches of the vine, from which the fruit is to come, are mortal men. Without the labor of men, his own life will not bear the fruit it ought. On the other hand, without his life in them, the labor of men will come to nothing. Not that the work of Jesus can be frustrated. His fruit will appear and will be manifested whether men refuse him or not. Let them reject him, and like dead twigs, they will be cut off and cast away. But the vine will still live on. New branches will ever appear and bear fruit. Others will ever be found to make up what is wanting and to bring the work of Jesus Christ to fruition. This, then, is a further step in the explanation of the spiritual life in the mind of Christ our Lord. Faith in him, trust in him, love of him, union with him as their reward, sorrow turned to joy because of him, these were the life itself in its root and its growth. They were the life as seen in prayer in the contemplative. Now, as a result, we are given the glorious fruit of the apostolate, and that not from any action, not from preaching, not from work, but wholly from union with him. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. These are the material for the making of a saint. This, in its cause and in its effects, is our Lord's own definition of sanctity. And how intimate is the union his words imply. For the life of the vine is the life of the branches. The branches are not to be distinguished from the vine. So the life of which he speaks is the life of Jesus. Its fruit is such as only that life can produce and no other. Man of himself cannot produce it. Yet it is produced through the median of men. The sap, the life of Jesus passing through them. Let us explain the declaration as we may. If the words of Jesus are to have any meaning at all, there is a solemn truth and not mere metaphor in the cry of the apostle. I live now, not I, but Christ liveth in me.